Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Michael Crona and Rosemary Pennington, who co-edited the new book, The Media World of ISIS. Michael Crona is the Assistant Professor in Media and Communication Studies and Visual Communications at Malmo University. He works within a nationally funded research project in Sweden exploring Salafi jihadist information operations with particular focus on ISIS communication practices. Rosemary Pennington is assistant professor at Miami University's Department of Media, Journalism, and Film, and she's also the co-editor of On Islam, Muslims, and the Media. Michael and Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. How did you decide to write a book on ISIS and media strategy? So I have a colleague here at Miami, Kathy German, who actually wrote a chapter for the book who was presenting research she had done on the visual rhetoric of ISIS at a conference. And she stopped by my office and said, you know, there are all of these panels happening at this conference. It might be interesting to think about, you know, pulling together a book about media and ISIS because it just had sort of exploded kind of from having not a lot of that stuff covered to just one year, just a ton of it. Uh, And so Kathy and I talked about it a bit and I knew Michael and I knew Michael did research on, ISIS and media and reached out to him and and asked if he'd be interested. And it just sort of grew from there. Yeah, I think uh, that's a fair um, recollection of of what happened. I think it's important to say, I think we started planning this book in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And as Rosemary said, it it was a time when the Islamic State was sort of on its peak in terms of media operation or or just had its peak of it. And uh, some books and some contributions were starting to um, be published, but most of the books about ISIS at that time was more about ideology or religion and didn't really specifically focus on the media aspect of it. So we decided to go ahead and make what is now a hopefully interesting contribution. So why is the study of ISIS's rhetoric and communication tactics important? Well, I think it's important in the sense that uh, ISIS or Islamic State or IS or ISIL uh, is the organization in comparison to other, both previous and and, um, uh, contemporary organizations, ISIS has managed to develop a model for communicating and for inspiring and for recruiting through the aid of, of different type of media platforms um, in a uh, sort of a, a way that hasn't been um, sort of uh, presented before by any other group. So they're uncomparable, basically, to any other groups. And I think that's uh, the key aspect of why this is an important topic, because it, not only can we learn a lot about the present uh, Islamic State, but also for future uh, future development and future organizations. And I think also there's so much work done on ISIS um, that looks at them as the as a geopolitical threat or as this sort of possible international terrorist threat, and a lot of conversation about media use, but 
um, as Michael and I were talking and looking at other other bits of writing about ISIS, there really wasn't this sort of deep engagement with um, how they were producing their messages, um, what might be persuasive in their messages, which we felt like was a really important part of the conversation that just wasn't um, being as highly focused on as other other things related to the Islamic State. I want to jump into the content of the book, but first I feel like I have to ask, al-Baghdadi was killed just as this book was released. <laughs> have you made some observations regarding the impact of his death on media strategies, or how has that impacted uh, the, the launch of the book? Since I, I, I work uh, predominantly with um, a daily sort of monitoring of Islamic State channels, and I believe that, the, uh, I think it was actually the same day the, the book was published, as you said, that Baghdadi's death was announced. And mm-hmm. since then, it has been um, quite a development. Uh, we are recording this one about one month, I think, now after. Um, and at the current time, we have had a, a significant um, uh, shutdown of different type of ISIS accounts on on their platforms by Europol and Telegram, uh, for instance. So right now it's 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 a very specific situation. But following the Baghdadi's death, uh, the first two weeks or so, it was quite quiet until they, um, I think it was ten days after or something, they presented a new caliph. A point you make in the introduction is that many Western audiences may only be familiar with violent imagery coming from ISIS, but they produce other propaganda as well. Can you talk about ISIS's content strategy for different audiences? I think in the uh, Kareem's chapter in the book where he looks at the images in Dabiq, um, which was a magazine that ISIS was publishing, that that is material that was very much meant for people who were either in the physical caliphate or ISIS was trying to recruit to the physical caliphate, uh, and it was very much trying to paint this picture of a functioning state that was uh, focused on the well-being of its citizens, the welfare of its citizens. There was a lot of glossy material that focused on sort of civic activities or, or things that the Islamic State was doing to improve the lives of people living within the caliphate. And so I think that's an interesting case. Um, It's chapter four in the book, looking at this material they were producing for people that was designed to help them understand that this caliphate was going to be a safe, functioning, kind of ideal state for them to live in if they would, you know, take the chance of moving to Iraq or Syria. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I also think that, that uh, Brian Hughes' chapter touches upon this as well, um, um, which is about the marketing of the Islamic State. Because over the years, uh, they managed to market or, or brand their organization through the physical caliphate predominantly. And and uh, the physical caliphate was an important um, aspect in their um, digital strategies in general for recruiting or making people to travel there. But it's also, I think it's, depending on how you see it, but it's sort of lucky that that they lost a lot of their physical caliphate within the time frame that we, we wrote this book. And it, it also sort of integrates some, some thoughts about what's happening now uh, when they don't have the physical caliphate as well, because it's a different type of marketing currently. That chapter on branding is interesting because we we see that ISIS is losing territory in the news and how even understanding ISIS's media strategy may turn some theories of radicalization on their heads. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Well, I think I think in in uh, general that the uh, I mean it's it's first of all it's a misconception to say that they totally lost their uh, caliphate or their their idea of the caliphate. They still brand themselves to a large extent as a caliphate, but it's um, relocated in the sense that their provinces now are more scattered. Uh, we see as uh, um, uh, so a sort of a physical presence in. African countries, we see it in Afghanistan, we see it in uh, Southeast Asia, for instance, towards India. And I think uh, the Islamic State has quite managed, uh, sort of managed quite well to rebrand itself after the the sort of the definite loss of, of territory in Iraq and Syria and, and sort of maintain the idea of a caliphate. And also, I think the appointment of uh, a new caliph, a new leader uh, for the organization, it sort of set the tone for the future as well because it was important for them to uh, appoint someone that they would name a caliph, which means the which also has the religious sort of aspect and connection to the caliphate. So it's it's an interesting future ahead to see where this organization is going. Uh, but I think it's I think it's uh, important to recognize that the idea that the caliphate is sort of is totally gone that's incorrect it's it's changed though yeah well and i think that's the the chapters that deal specifically with the digital infrastructures and ecology like michael's um that isis has built is so fundamental to understanding how it is that they've been able to um sort of rebrand, rethink themselves and sustain themselves with the loss of territory in the way they have. And as Michael pointed out, you know, uh, popping up in in African countries and Southeast Asia uh, and sort of, uh, you know, rebranding Iraq and Syria, which were imagined as sort of the heart of the caliphate at one at what point is now just provinces of this much larger thing. They're able to do that because they have this broad media infrastructure they built in these digital spaces, um, which again, is what part of the reason it's so important to understand how they're using these spaces and, and what sort of messages they're perpetuating in them. Yeah, Michael, you lead off the section of the book called Mediating Terror with the essay entitled ISIS's Media Ecology and Participatory Activism Tactics. First off, can you talk about the vision for this section and explain what media ecology is? Well, media ecology is a... Um sort of it's a, it's a sort of an equivalent to to media infrastructure and and uh, but it is slightly more complex media ecology also include uh content of media not just the different type of platforms uh that that this organization is using so the section itself which is the second part of the book uh contains uh chapters and contributions on both content um and narratives in the propaganda, uh, as well as in my chapter, which focuses more on the actual infrastructure, um, the channels they are using, the type of platforms they have used. And um, yeah, I wanted to, at least in my chapter, I wanted to set a tone where we can understand that the thing we refer to when we talk about ISIS media and their information operations, so this is nothing that really uh, was developed during 2014 when they declared their caliphate. It has a long history, um, over 10 years of history of development, um, where a media sort of strategy and uh, media uh, sort of uh, contributions in terms of finances has developed into a certain 
type of industry. And this industry was then starting to become globally utilized. Uh, and um, I think it's even... It's even more interesting if, if we look at the actual tactics that ISIS developed and used, which we now see rivalry groups like Al-Qaeda or whatever group it might be are actually using similar tactics. So um, the section is interesting, uh, I hope, in terms of trying to understand the scope and magnitude of this media infrastructure and the, the variety of content that ISIS propaganda has been um, sort of presenting over the years. You talk about the use of social media, and that is a thread that runs throughout the book. And you point out that social media was heralded as a tool that enabled the Arab Spring, but these technologies can cut both ways in terms of mobilization. How does new media play out in your analysis? Yeah, I think it's an important starting point. During the Arab Spring, if we go back a few years, we saw we celebrated the technology and the discourses on information freedom and internet freedom was prevailing to a large extent, not least in the academic debate. Um, and that sort of was challenged, uh, I believe, when ISIS uh, started to gain global attention in 2013-2014. Because what ISIS was using in a way um, very specific was that they... Uh, facilitated and utilized the most intimate social media uh, applications and, and um, platforms that any any sort of Western youth uh, actually uses, Instagram or if it's Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or Kik. I mean, it's been an array of uh, social media applications that they have utilized and has remained on um, for for several years, uh, having an online presence there. And the interesting psychological factor in this, I believe, is that these are platforms that we um, tend to connect to amusement or entertainment or close, intimate friendships, etc. And there, there is this interesting psychological aspect of what happens when these type of social media platforms are utilized by a group in which the messaging is so completely different. Yeah, and I, I think that's important to think about that aspect of connection and the fact that these are spaces where, in addition to entertainment, people go to connect to other people like them or who have experiences like them. And the ISIS, the individuals who run these accounts for ISIS and sort of the, the thought that goes into how they present themselves in these spaces is utilizing that sort of affordance of these new technologies for connection, for intimacy, uh, to build relationships with people, uh, you know, in order to recruit them or to sort of gain sympathizers. So it's an interesting space where with the Arab Spring, we celebrated this, these technologies as spaces of connection for protest and to overthrow autocrats, whereas in the case of ISIS, um, this group is using the, these materials in similar ways for different ends, right? Still relying on connections, still relying on intimacy, still relying on mobilization, but um, around uh, messaging that um, is sort of the opposite of, of what I think we all imagine sort of the Arab Spring was kind of leading to, or any other sort of movement Right, that whether it's Me Too or or anything where you you are connecting to other people in digital spaces, ISIS is doing something very similar, just for an end that is very different than I think what what people imagined it would be used for. 
Yeah, and if I just uh, can add uh, something to that, I, I believe when we when we talk about the concept of radicalization, it's it's usually that we divide it into um, online radicalization and in uh, and uh, sort of offline radicalization. And within the online radicalization, we seem to believe that there is this homogeneous use of the internet or digital technologies. But I believe the, what Rosemary points out here also, the connections and intimacy and social relations involved in that online community that ISIS has managed to uh, deploy, I think that uh, stands out as, I mean, in comparison to other uh, groups, again, I think that stands out as a very, very complex um, and to give credit to the Islamic State, it's also a very skillful use of an effective use of social media platforms. So how significant would you say the type of media platform is in ISIS's success in effective targeting and influence? I think the, it's not necessarily the, the platforms itself. It's also the combination of with the messaging. We can, we can see a variety of, of um, outlets. We see a variety of forms of media. We have visual, for instance, expressions with um, more textual uh, messaging. We have this combination of, for instance, uh, their news agency presenting news from the organization in a way that is very familiar to us because it looks like a Western news agency uh, and their press releases and etc. And that creates a, a, a confusion sometimes with us. And we have also seen that uh, journalists in Western mainstream media uh, usually has taken these type of news uh, within uh, quotation marks um, uh, as something that is credible. So they have treated ISIS organization and their news agency as a credible source of information. So I think that says a lot. And then if you combine that with the amount of photographs or the infamous video productions that we have seen over the years. I think the combination of platforms and content is what is most important and most significant in terms of understanding uh, the Islamic State online. You mentioned the concept of uh, culture jamming. Can you talk about that and how it's being leveraged? Yeah, culture jamming is a, a tactic uh, which is uh, primarily used as... Um, uh, for instance, by the, the organization Adbusters, uh, who mock up certain um, uh, cultural references and creates a new message and recontextualize messages. And uh, the Islamic State and especially their supporters have utilized this tactic a lot in order to create content that is recognizable for the targeted audience, but then to twist the the actual message or the actual reference into a new message. So... I mean, also on that level, a quite detailed level of analysis of the different type of content that they produce. And this is not just the official organization, it's actually the online supporters as well. That is that they take something that is so recognizable and has a certain connection to us, but they twist it and thereby make it more efficient in terms of delivering the message that they want to uh, propose. In the section of the book on narratives of the Islamic State, Rosemary, your essay looks at the campaign to stop Christian genocide. Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of that campaign and what you explored in your chapter? Sure. So uh, it's interesting that I first came across this when I was watching, um, you know, in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, watching the news, and I just saw this ad appear on CNN. 
And it was all of this, you know, stuff from ISIS in this ad that was being used um, to call out politicians that were not doing enough for um, groups, particularly Christian groups that were being targeted by the Islamic State. And I saw it once and I thought, well, maybe that's a one-off. And then I just kept seeing this ad over and over again and finally paid attention to sort of the group that was attached to it and Googled, uh, which took me to their website. So it's the Stop the Christian Genocide um, campaign uh, was active um, again, in the run-up to the presidential election, uh, and the website still exists, although it doesn't seem like they're producing as much material, but it was designed to put pressure on political leaders uh, and sort of pundits to think about what was happening to Christian communities um, in the ISIS caliphate um, as a genocide, uh, because there were um, reports of Christian communities um, being devastated by the Islamic State. Uh, and so... Um, the Stop the Christian Genocide campaign was bundling, um, pulling in material produced by ISIS. So uh, videos of them destroying churches, um, videos of, of the explosion of, of Christian shrines. Um, there was a video showing people, you know, ISIS uh, individuals, um, assassinating individuals, uh, all sort of designed to sort of communicate to the viewer that this is uh, a targeted um, attempt to eradicate Christian communities in the Islamic uh, State Caliphate, uh, and it was genocidal in nature. And so for me, what was interesting was that in all of these materials, they were repackaging and recirculating ISIS stuff, right? So, so some of it that was material that I had seen in news reports on, on what the, ISIS, the Islamic State was doing, but some of it was also material that I had not seen in sort of general circulation. And it made me start thinking about um, sort of the ethics of remixing material produced by um, extremist or violent groups into news stories or campaigns like that that are sort of meant to counter them and sort of what um, that might be communicating uh, and whether it might be effective or effective enough. So I basically looked at all of the videos that the, um, the campaign had produced uh, up until we basically turned the book in, uh, just to kind of get an idea of what 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 they were doing with the material. Uh, interestingly, it does seem like they kind of began moving away from using ISIS material and started using a lot more personal testimony once it seemed like their people could get access to Christians affected by the Islamic State. But that's kind of what the the chapter is looking at, and kind of why I wanted to explore it. And in your chapter, you examine the significance of serving as a witness to suffering, even at a distance through an online video. Can you talk more about that? Oh, sure. So there's a, a large literature on the idea of of witnessing events through media and 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 what that does to us as witnesses, and whether it's an effective tool. And a lot of what um, the campaign was trying to to sort of facilitate was that idea that um, you are witnessing this genocide. And so because you are a witness, you are called to do something about what you witnessed. So there's a point where uh, in some of their materials, they have a priest who had been a victim of the Islamic State talking about his experience. He's sort of crying. And then there's a, a young boy in the, in the video who's also crying and calls the Islamic State beasts. And it's sort of designed to force you to 
acknowledge their suffering, to witness their suffering, to think about it. And at the end of the video, it's a call of call to action, you know, saying stop the Christian genocide. So it's it's meant to sort of implicate you as the viewer in that experience to make sure you can't ignore it. And then again, because it's a campaign, they want you to leverage that into contacting senators, contacting politicians to get them to sort of advocate on behalf of these individuals. When I was reading your chapter, Rosemary, I saw the the concept that you're talking about the broadcasting of suffering as in a way a type of honor challenge to those who are observing the content, even though in the case of the Christian genocide, the the objective was for someone to mobilize against ISIS. And that same propaganda was being used in um, by ISIS themselves to try to spurn participatory engagement within different media platforms. I think it's interesting that propaganda can have kind of two heads of the same coin in terms of the challenges it poses to the identity of the viewer. Right. And they're pushing a message and they want you to do something with it. And both of these are taking place in digital media spaces where if I'm watching most of these uh, campaign videos for the Stop the Christian Genocide campaign, um, you had to access on YouTube or on their website. So you can, in the moment, if you're watching that, you feel connected to these people who are suffering and that call to action is something that resonates with you. You can immediately send a tweet out. You can share the URL. You can immediately send an email to your local, you know, your personal Senator who's, who, who represents you um, in Congress. So it, it is kind of a, a similar idea where they're relying on the space and its ability to facilitate participation. Um, however, that's imagined to sort of get you to do something with with what they're providing. In the case of the Islamic State, right, it's sort of often recirculating their material um, for them, or as, as Michael said, sort of inspiring individuals to sort of create memes, essentially, uh, to per, sort of to promote their message. And then with the Stop the Christian Genocide campaign, um, the idea of producing material that will get you to, to act. Is ISIS winning the propaganda war? Um, the current situation is quite different. Um, they have, for, for a number of years, uh, been winning the propaganda war in the sense that they have used the propaganda and it's been essential for them and success, successful part of their strategy. But currently, it, it is an interesting situation where, as I mentioned previously also, that we have a number of platforms and companies now shutting them down on different platforms. So now they are experimenting with finding a new outlet and a new platform where they can have a stable presence online as they have done before. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I mean, if we look at it from over the years and maybe a five years perspective, uh, they definitely have won the war on, on propaganda because we still, so far, we haven't really seen a successful online campaign against them. We have seen some success in terms of uh, de-radicalization, etc. But, uh, I mean, from a governmental point of view or a larger international point of view, we have yet to find ways to, to counter them online. I think it's hard to define winning. I think that certainly ISIS has been proven, has proven to be difficult to counter. And I think that people who are I, again, how do you define winning? Uh, 
they are still recruiting people. They are still getting people to engage with their materials and circulate their materials. Um, so on one hand, uh, yes, you know, Michael may be right that they're winning, but at the same time, I think it's still in this space where we're still so soon after sort of the the fall of the physical caliphate in, in Iraq and Syria and, and the loss of Baghdadi to really know what winning is going to look like for them in the future. So I, I think that they're still proven to be um, a long-lasting organization. And so on that hand, you can say, yes, they're winning, but um, will they be able to sort of pull off the kinds of things they were pulling off in the past? Um, and will they be able to sort of stay as cohesive as they have been? It's hard to tell. What lessons can we take from this book to better counter ISIS? I think uh, the book uh, hopefully can be a, a, I mean, not only a contribution to the, the current debates on how to understand and analyze uh, ISIS, but also to be a, um, like a, um, a, a necessary framework for taking political measures uh, towards uh, this type of organization. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really complex issue, but if we look at the media aspect, which the book actually uh, evolves around, the media aspect um, is uh, it requires a, a closer cooperation, I believe, between uh, the online community and, and the civil society. It also requires closer cooperation between law enforcement agencies and, and various intelligence agencies to try to counter um, uh, ISIS messaging. I, I don't think that we will ever sort of defeat this uh, ideology being spread online because the online world uh, thing stays there and it's it's an open type of, of world. So I just think that we need to find ways to cooperate between different authorities and agencies uh, and also combine the online efforts with more efforts in the religious communities and the civil society in general. But it is a vague answer because it's a difficult question and nobody really has figured it out yet. Rosemary, did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I would say the the one thing that I would add is that um, the idea that um, if you are countering an organization such as ISIS, that you have to understand what it is you're countering and to think about the complexity of what it is. It's not just a singular message for a singular audience. Um, you know, we talked a bit earlier about um, how Dabiq was trying to present a particular kind of idealistic um, vision of what the, the physical caliphate could be for people who lived there. Uh, but the messages that they, um, you know, used to try to recruit people to join the, the organization um, from the West is one kind of message. And then also, the which we haven't talked a lot about were you know the messages meant to inspire terror so the you know the beheading videos which is really what brought them to the attention of so many international media outlets it's a it's multiple messages for multiple audiences and i think in order to counter a group like this you can't go in thinking one one um one approach is going to take care of all of it that it's really got to be a complex effort that involves listening to people on the ground um really engaging with the messages that are are being produced and really trying to understand why they resonate with individuals. You know, something about those messages that the Islamic State produced resonated deeply enough with um, the people who were consuming them that, you know, people were leaving 
comfortable lives in the West to go join the Islamic State in the case of people they were recruiting to, to become members. Like thinking about what it is that resonated, I think is so crucial beyond simply the sort of sensational side of the, the messaging. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, we'd like to hear what you're working on now. Michael, would you like to go first? Yeah, so currently I'm, I'm uh, tracking and monitoring um, ISIS uh, ongoing experimentation with uh, new platforms. Uh, I also am finishing a, um, a chapter for another edited volume, which will be out next year, uh, where I have written a, a chapter on the visuality of, of torture and beheadings uh, and the visual significance uh, sort of the visual strategies of, of these type of, of videos. So um, that will be out next year in a uh, volume on Edinburgh University Press, I think. Uh, and I also continue with my project here in Sweden, which is a nationally funded project on Salafi jihadist information warfare uh, against Sweden. And Rosemary, what are you working on now? So my big projects have nothing to do with national security that I'm dealing with. Uh, my broad research interests are in the representation of Islam and Muslims in media. So um, I have a couple of projects looking at um, the representation of um, Islam on news magazines, uh, one looking at uh, Islam and Instagram, and then I have a big book project I'm working on looking at the representation of Muslims in American Muslims in popular media. So looking at reality TV shows comedy shows, comic books, uh, looking at sort of the way people remembered Muhammad Ali after his death, trying to understand um, how we as American audiences understand the position of Muslims within uh, broader American society. Best of luck with all of your projects and thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. The Media World of ISIS edited by Michael Krona and Rosemary Pennington, is available now from Indiana University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.